the stuff that we talked about last time, we wanted to know kind of some logical arguments for God. Uh, we can't prove that God exists. He sees fit to allow us to operate on faith. But um, there are some logical kind of exercises we can go through to say, you know what, this God thing is not crazy. It does make sense. And so one of those was the teleological argument, which is just a fancy word for the fact that we look around and we see evidence of a designer everywhere that we look. So we wouldn't look at Mount Rushmore and say, wow, neat natural formation. No, of course not. You look at Mount Rushmore and you know a hand of a person who planned it, did that, and I think that it looks as though the hand of a person planned and did all of this. Um, DNA implies a creator because DNA is a language and a language requires intelligence. Um, when we look at the periodic table and see how regular it is and how predictable it is, that implies design, not something born out of chaos. Um, so just some ideas there about the, the teleological argument. We talked about the cosmological argument, which is just a fancy way of saying cause and effect. Every cause, everything is caused by something. And so you have to follow that chain backward. How did this happen? Well, this and this happened, and that made that happen. Well, how did those things happen? How did those things happen? How did those things happen? And eventually you arrive at the beginning. And the beginning is either a chemical accident, an explosion that makes absolutely no sense, as you will see when we get into that here in another week or two. Um, it's either that or it's God. And the truth of the matter is, there is no natural explanation that actually explains it. It requires a supernatural explanation. The reason why we're comfortable in saying God caused all of this, when we don't know where God came from, we say, well, the Big Bang caused it all, but what caused the Big Bang? Well, we don't know. Okay. Well, what caused God? Well, we don't know that either. But God doesn't need a cause because he's God. And he just always has been and always will be. And we can't explain him because he's not natural. We can't look at a natural set of laws and say, well, those are the laws that apply to God. God is beyond that. There is no natural explanation. There is a supernatural one. But you have to be willing in faith to accept a supernatural cause, which we do. Uh, and then there is the um, metaphysical argument which is just basically we can't disprove God. Um, our own logic is flawed and, and imperfect. And I'm missing one. Co cosmological, teleological. Oh, yeah, moral. The axiological argument, which is fancy talk for moral, uh, a moral statement. Um, and I'm probably, I think the reason why I skipped that one, for me, the moral argument is so obvious that it's kind of thin. I, I have a hard time arguing it for a long time. Morality implies God. We look around the world and animals and, and any kind of natural process doesn't follow a moral principle. Only human beings operate on a moral principle, which is convenient because only human beings are created in the image of God, and that makes sense. And we answer to God. And when something is wrong, even when all of society says, that's okay, we still know in our heart that it's wrong. Well, where does that come from? It's not a cultural product. It's not in our DNA. Where does that morality come from? Well, it comes from God. Um, for somebody, one of the podcasts I listened to as I was preparing for this over the last, you know, however many years it is I've been fiddling with apologetics, it's a guy, it's called Cold Case Christianity. Look it up. It's cool. It's a fun one to listen to. Um, all of the podcasts I listen to, by the way, are towards the back of the book. They're all listed in there, all the different things that I like to get my information from. But um, he is really big on the moral argument because he's a detective and he spends a lot of time 
when he was a detective, interviewing people who are not moral <laughs> and, and putting people in jail. And for him, the moral argument is like the bread. He's like, that's all I need, honestly. That proves God to me. Um, so he probably does a better job of explaining it than I do. But all of those things added together give us really good reason to say, yeah, there's a logical reason to, to fall back on God. So now, if we're willing to accept even just the possibility that God exists, the next logical step is to say, okay, well, God's message to us is his word. Is that word reliable? Is it what it claims to be, the word of God? Um, and I will say this right before I get into it. Uh, all of these things that we talk about, none of them are going to probably convince a person who's dead set that God does not exist that he does. Um, that's a work of the heart. That's a work of the spirit. Um, what I would encourage you, if, if there's somebody in your life and you're like, oh man, I'm getting all this stuff, I bet if I go talk to so-and-so, this will convince them, eh, I don't want to be discouraging, probably not, but what you got to know is this stuff that we're putting together, it is not a battering ram that's going to knock down the door of the atheist. What it is, is it's pry bar. And if you know a person really well, sooner or later, in a conversation, that moment comes when they say something that lets you know that door is, there's a crack in it. You know, the door to their heart has a crack in it and they are questioning and they're curious and they want to know more about God, even if they don't believe in him. That's where this comes in and you can really pry that door open with information like this. But it's not going to bust down somebody's door probably um, because that, they have to make that decision in their heart first. And so if there's somebody like that in your life and you say, all this stuff's just going to bounce off of them, well, then you pray for them. God has a way of cracking the door and then this stuff can, you know, get that door open. When you're opening a jar or an old, turning a wrench on an old rusty bolt, man, if it moves the tiniest little bit, you got it, you know? You cranking on that thing, you're just like, oh, it moved a little. Get the WD-40 out, you know, and then it'll go. This is the WD-40, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll grease it. Okay, so we'll get into God's word tonight. That's what we want to talk about survival. So um, I know Jenny had that up. She's doing it. I can tell. She has a face of concentration. Okay, so how do we get the Bible? That's what we want to know. Um, is it reliable? Is it accurate? And how do we know? So we're on page 18 of your book. Actually, can, do I have the power to go backwards, babe? Oh, I don't have the power to do anything. And my microphone's slipping after all. Ha ha! I'm wearing it. Dennis apparently was not too happy about the fact that I put his microphone on the other ear and bent it all out of shape. Fair enough. Don't mess with the guy's microphone. Um, I'm trying real hard to wear it on my right ear tonight, but it's already proven that it's a failure. Uh, one last thing, I promise I'm going to get started, but I will say I had 32 slides last week. I only have 14 tonight, so I can afford a little time. Um, I kind of, I was going back over this myself, and I was like, I don't feel like I really talked about this in a way that made it all kind of come together and make sense, and that's largely because I probably can't, but... God is not just a God of the gaps. We don't just go and find a gap in our reasoning and say, okay, well, here's something science can't explain. Therefore, we'll just stick God in that, that little spot. Like, well, we can't explain it, so there, there's your proof of God. God is bigger than that. We can logically come to the conclusion that God exists. He is not a God of the gaps. But there's a quote in your book that I want to reference you to. Um, I don't cover it anywhere else. I don't cover it in the slides. So if you humor me quickly and turn to page 30. You and I 
have what is in Latin called an a priori argument. We already believe God exists. So we're going to read God into whatever it is that we're looking into. So when we propose how we all got here, we're starting from the standpoint that, well, God exists, and we're really just proving something that we already know to be true. But for an atheist, they look at that and they say, well, you've assumed God before you've actually proved him. That's true. But you are assuming God doesn't exist, and that's its own logical fallacy. Here's a guy who grew up, was an atheist, and decided, I'm going to prove that God does not exist. And this is the conclusion that he came to. This is Lee Strobel. Um, he's the guy who wrote the book, The Case for Christ. Um, and he's written some other The Case Fours. But The Case for Christ is really good. If you haven't read it, do so. Um, a lot of people read it and say it's really dry and they don't like it. If you are one of those people, talk to me. I'll be happy to talk to you about it. Because I loved it. And I did not get bored at all. Um, and and I, I'll help you. Uh, but Lee Strobel said this. I realized if I were to embrace Darwinism survival of the fittest, you know, the, the evolutionary explanation for how we all got here. If I were to embrace Darwinism and its underlying premise of naturalism, I would have to believe nothing produces fine-tuning. Chaos produces information. Unconsciousness produces consciousness. Non-reason produces reason. The central pillars of evolutionary theory quickly rotted away when exposed to scrutiny. I think Lee explains it better than I could. That's it right there. We come to this argument, even if you didn't believe in God and you really got into it and investigated, I think you would find there's more evidence supporting him than supporting any other explanation. Okay, so now let's get into his word, the Bible. You didn't miss anything, those of you who just got here. We're just, we're just getting there. So how do we get the Bible? Okay, so in, I'm, I have a master's degree in history. We really like to pick apart source material. That's what we do. So um, when you're reading a history, I know I took a class in college, my very first graduate level course, History 401 or whatever, 601 or whatever in the world it was. Um, what we did in there was find it, a history and then read it and figure out what the author's back, backstory is. If you read the words that they write, you can tell what they're all about. And you can crack a book open and get five pages in and be like, oh, this guy... He's from this country, and they do this there, and you get all that figured out. So source material is very important. When we're doing a history, the most, the absolute best thing we can get is a first-person account. We love it when a book is written by the person who actually experienced the event that they're writing about. Uh, I was talking to somebody after the apologetic series uh, last week, and they were, we were talking about this, and I said, you know, something that was written about 9-11 by somebody who survived 9-11, they were in one of those buildings and got evacuated, or they were a first responder that was there, or whatever. Like, that, who would question that testimony? Like, we wouldn't, we wouldn't really pick it apart too much. How could we know? We were not there. They were there. And they're telling us what they saw. Yeah. How, what better source could you possibly get? Unless it was tape recorded, you're not going to get a better source. So... First-person account, that's what we want, if we can get it. If we can't get a first-person account, then the next best thing is a person who has access to people who have a first-person account, and then they record it, and preferably they record it during the lifetime of other people who would have lived 
to see it. If I wrote a story about 9-11, I wasn't there. I was a senior in high school when that happened. If I were to write a book about that and go seek people out who had lived through it and wrote down what they said and I published it next year, great. The testimonies that I write about, if I get it wrong, there are plenty of people to prove me wrong. Because if I wrote something completely made up, it wouldn't last. People would say, well, that's not right. And nobody would buy the book. And eventually it would fade into obscurity and it'd get lost and nobody would read it. Because the people would tear it apart. So if we've got a book that was written by somebody who saw it themselves or somebody who was alive at that time and interviewed people who saw it themselves and it comes out in time for everybody to pick it apart if they want to pick it apart, then it should be accurate. And what's cool is the New Testament absolutely meets that standard. And we'll get into that here in the next couple slides. I am starting with the New Testament and not the Old Testament, which might seem weird because chronologically you'd think you'd talk about the Old Testament first. Here's why we talk about the New Testament first. The only reason I care about the Old Testament is Jesus. Have you read the Old Testament? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, oh man, Leviticus, that gets tough. If you, if, if you read Genesis and Exodus, like that's fun. You get to Leviticus and it's like, I don't know about this. And it, it kind of doesn't get a lot better for a little while there. Um, I would not bother reading the Old Testament if it wasn't for the New Testament. I'm still trying to make this thing work. I promise I'm trying. Put it up here. I move enough that it just, it likes to move. Um, okay, so Jesus is our inroad. If you were a new, a, a new Christian who was alive when Jesus was alive and you saw him and maybe you met him but you didn't witness a miracle, you just saw him and you heard people talking about him and then you heard that he died and you'd be like, oh, well, that's the end of that. Some God, he was. But then you're hearing people say, no, 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 he came back. They killed him, but he's back. He's, he's around, you know. It's, it's within 40 days of him, of him resurrecting. He's around somewhere. And then you see him, you'd be like, this dude's legit, right? I mean, like, he died. I know he died. They crucified him. Romans are professionals at crucifying. No doubt about it, the dude was dead. He was in a tomb, and there he is with holes in his hands, with a hole in his side that he'll show you if you ask. Apparently, Thomas did, and he was willing to show him. That's pretty convincing. If you met him and you missed it, you had the opportunity to see Jesus's ministry. You had the opportunity to witness miracles and you missed it. Oh man, what a drag. But hey, you know, like his best bud, John, wrote a testimony about it. Wrote everything down. Everything that he thought was important and it's available. You can get it. It's called the Gospel of John. You're like, oh, I want a copy of that. You know, you would want to get a copy of that because, yeah, I want to know everything that I can know. And then you find out, oh, well, Matthew wrote one too. And Matthew's is probably even more complete, not as personal. John's the personal one. But the Matthew story is a more complete story. You're like, oh, yeah, that's great. I want to read that. And then you find out there's two more stories. You want to read those. And then you find out there's all this cool, miraculous stuff going on in the first century church. People are getting bit by poisonous snakes and not dying. Prison doors are just popping open in the middle of the night. and Dudes are walking out. I want to know about that stuff. So you read all that, and you've got that whole kind of New Testament down. And then you find out, well, there's a prequel. Jesus has a backstory. 
they've been predicting this guy for a couple thousand years. I'd want to read that too. Nobody wants to watch the prequel of a movie until you've seen the movie. You know, you watch the movies and they're like, oh, they released one that comes before. Oh, well, I'll go watch that. It might have been boring in the first place, but now that I know how it ends up, I want to know what happened before. Well, that's the Old Testament. And so we'll get into that. Um, but let's start with the New Testament. So the New Testament is either written by somebody who was alive for Jesus and watched him do it and walked with him or somebody who walked with the people who walked with Jesus. So let's look at it. Um, the entire New Testament, all of it, every book of it is written by either one of his apostles, one of his physical, biological half-brothers, I guess we would have to call them, right? I mean, they're his brothers. They have the same mom and the same dad, but they're still only half-brothers. Read Luke if that doesn't make sense to you yet. Um, or really, really close associates of one of those categories. They were guys who were alive there, and all of the New Testament is written within the lifetime of anybody who wants to pick it apart. Um, there's some debate about when the Old Test or the New Testament was all finished writing. Probably around A.D. 70, which you got to think, Jesus, we're talking about his life happening around A.D. 30, you know, his ministry. So you're talking about one lifetime of time. It was all there. By the year 120 A.D., which is, you know, less than 100 years after Jesus' ministry, what we call the New Testament was all done, all assembled in one volume and was out there. Churches had it. So pretty quick. We did not waste a lot of time here getting this thing together. So um, the New Testament authors did exactly what we would want them to do. They were eyewitnesses to it. They recorded it. They got it out there in enough time that people who wanted to pick it apart could have. And you know what? It made it. It stood the test of time. That's pretty cool. We'll look a little bit more detailed at this. You have a, a picture in your book on page 21. I put a copy down here so I could reference that. It looks a lot like this. Um, some of the, the graphics and stuff you'll see on the slides tonight are a little bit different looking in your book. I just kind of did what was visually going to work for each medium a little bit better. Um, so I've got here on the right-hand side all the books in the entire New Testament, and we're going to color them in as we see who... I'm just proving to you. I'm not pulling any punches here. We know who wrote it, and it's all good. So the book of Matthew was written by... Matthew. Go, go figure. Surprise, surprise. The apostle Matthew who followed Jesus. Um, the book of John was written by John. But John also wrote the letters of John 1, 2, and 3. And of course, the revelation at the end of the Bible. And then Peter, the rock upon whom Jesus would build his church, wrote First and Second Peter, the letters of Peter. Which leaves a lot of gaps, Right? Okay, so then we go down a level. These were the guys who followed Jesus, walked around with him, were there for his entire earthly ministry. These guys were what I would consider probably your first generation church. This, these are the people who became followers of Jesus after the story had kind of completed and Jesus had been resurrected. So you've got Mark and Luke, both of whom are mentioned in the New Testament. Like, not only did they write books, but like Paul references them and talks about them as, hey, these are buddies of mine. Both of them actually went with Paul on missionary journeys, and Mark was also a close friend, the Bible tells us, of Peter, which makes sense. Um, so Mark writes the gospel of 
Mark, if you've ever thought it was weird that Jesus said, Peter, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, but we don't have a book of Peter, that is kind of interesting. Probably Mark would be the book of Peter. Mark is the first gospel to be published. It comes out about AD 50, and really what we believe that is, Peter was not good at writing, may have even been illiterate not able to write. Um, And Mark took that gospel as Peter was dictating it and he wrote it down. There's There's a lot of good reason to think that that's the way the gospel of Mark happened. But in any case, Mark was rolling around with Peter and Paul on a regular basis. He would know. He would be okay. You know, if a, if a roadie for Aerosmith writes a biography of Aerosmith, That's probably pretty legit, right? I mean, honestly, probably better than what Aerosmith would write because they were like sober for all of it, you know, and could actually write it down. And so um, to be somebody who's rolling along with these disciples, yeah, they're going to have a good bead on what was going on. They're there for all of it. They're there for all this early church preaching and all that stuff. So Mark writes that. Uh, Luke is, again, he's a young man in the, in the gospel accounts. They're talking about this young guy who opens his house up to the early church to come and hang out in. And that's this Luke. And he's also brilliant. He's a doctor. And anybody who reads Greek, which is not me, um, will tell you Luke's Greek is like beautiful. It's just like so beautiful. He has a mastery of the language. And he set out to do what no other gospel writer did. John set out to write the personal heartfelt story of Jesus. And it's my favorite gospel. The one whom Jesus loved wrote that gospel. And it's from the heart. And Matthew has this different mind that wants to write a slightly different gospel. And it's more complete and it gives a really logical track through Jesus's ministry. It's like, here's all the stuff Jesus preached about this, and here's all the stuff Jesus preached about this. Very complete. The gospel of Luke is a history. Luke set out to write something that anybody could read, and that's why Luke gets it all the way back from the start. The Bethlehem story and all of that, and takes us all the way through. And actually, you can take Luke and Acts and just move John out of the way, That's a full story that just continues. The book of Luke is the Jesus story, and then the book of Acts is, now that Jesus is gone, this is what the church did, the history of the early church, the Acts of the Apostles. So Luke wrote that. So we got Mark wrote Mark, Luke wrote Luke and Acts. All those blue books there from Romans all the way down through Philemon are writings of Paul, letters of Paul. I always told the kids when I was teaching them in Sunday school, like, if you're If you're in any doubt, like, who wrote this book of the Bible? Just guess Paul. It's almost always right. Interestingly, though, Luke actually writes more of the New Testament than Paul. That's just a fun fact. Um, If you count the words, there's more words in Luke's accounts than there are in Paul's. But Paul gets, you know, a lot of titles because he's got a lot of cool short letters in there. James and Jude, who wrote the books, James and Jude, go figure. Um, They are Jesus' brothers, so they would know. You would think. Um, And that fills in everything in the entire New Testament except for the book of Hebrews. And as Dennis is teaching on Hebrews right now, you know, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. It's a tricky one, but it's very good. And the early church, going back as far forward as you want to go, 
considered Hebrews to be scripture, um, and so it's always been included in there, even though its authorship is anonymous. So, we know who wrote the entire New Testament, and even if you take Hebrews out, for some reason, if you're just like a purist and you absolutely refuse to accept Hebrews because it doesn't have a known author, okay, the entire gospel story is there. Everything you need to know. Honestly, read one gospel. I pick John. That's all you need to know. If the only thing you had access to was the book of John, you'd be fine. You'd get the whole story. You would know Jesus was the son of God. You would know what you need to do to be saved. All right there. Plenty, plenty of information right there. Okay, so how do we know? We know who wrote these books. Great, but good grief, that was a couple thousand years ago. How do we know that those books are what they claim to be, that they actually are God's word and that they are reliable and that they didn't get changed and somebody didn't go and edit them in their mom's basement or something like that? Um, so how can you tell if a book is accurate? Uh, on page 22, I think is actually where it is. I put 21 on there. But some of this stuff kind of pops up on 22 and 23 if you're trying to kind of tell where this is at in your book. Here's how we want to know. How old, if an old book, I can't go to the publisher, I can't go to the author, I can't get the backstory. How am I going to know? If we just dig a book up out of the ground somewhere and read it and it's got crazy stories in it we've never heard before, how would we know if it's true or not? Because there's nobody to interview. I mean... If we get lucky and we dig something up archaeologically that, that confirms it, then that's great. But barring that, how do we know that an old book is good? Here's how we know. One, how many copies of it are there? If a book is good, there's going to be a lot of copies available. If a book was well-read and people really liked it, it gets around and there will be copies. That sounds simple, but it makes a lot of sense. A book that's not very good does not sell many copies. There's just not a lot of copies around. Today, junk books are everywhere because copy machines exist. We can just go write something on our word processor and print cheap copies at a copy shop and get them done, right? Like that. But back then, a book, good grief, paper was hard to get hold of. So to source out paper and to have some scribe hand write all of these pages, it better be good. If there's a lot of copies of an old book, there's a chance people really thought something special about it. Now that we've got all these copies, take them, lay them down. A copy that I found in this country versus a copy I found in this country, a copy that's 500 years old versus a copy that's only 50 years old, and read them, compare them. Is there any differences? I mean, that's a pretty good way to know. Has this book changed over time? Or is it basically the same? The Bible has a lot of copies. You're going to see on an upcoming slide just how many copies. It's insane how many copies there are. Are they similar to one another? You bet they are. If you've ever wondered why people got so excited about the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls, we hear about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Here's what the Dead Sea Scrolls are. Some sheep herder out in the middle of a desert somewhere was trying to get out of the weather and crawled into a cave that apparently nobody had been in for a very long time and he found vases basically and inside them scrolls and those scrolls turned out to be a heck of a lot of the Bible and they're really old copies. Now why would anybody take a copy of the Bible and chuck it in a vase and put it in a cave. Here's why. Have you ever get those little Gideon Bibles? 
Like somebody's handing them out, like you're on a college campus or something. So they're like handing you Bibles like, great, I already have one. You know, like I get it. If you never had a Bible before, that's pretty cool. But if you've got Bibles at home, like that little bitty green one is probably not your favorite one to pull out and read scripture from because it's like 2.3 font or something. But I can't chuck them in the trash. It feels weird to just throw them away. I have done it. So if you've done it, don't feel bad. I've done it. Um, but like when people had copies of scripture, they didn't want to just chuck them. They didn't want to burn them. What do you do with them? Return them to God. Put them, just put them in a cave. Put them in a hole. Dig a hole and put them away. I read that once. Like, how do you dispose of an old Bible? Dig a hole and put it in a hole. I guess. I mean, that's as good as anything. You're not really destroying it. You're just kind of like, it's yours now, God, right? And so that's what people would do. They would take them and they'd put them in a vase and they'd put them in a cave and they'd forget about them because you didn't destroy it. But at the same time, it was an old worn out copy and you had a new copy and you didn't need that one anymore. The Gideons weren't handing them out back then. <laughs> uh, but that's, that's why. So when we found those Dead Sea Scrolls and we got them out and unrolled them and looked, guess what? They're in perfect agreement with the scripture we have now. And how long have they been in that cave? So over that many hundreds or thousands of years, the word didn't change. That's pretty cool. How long is the gap between the event that it's about and the writing of the book? It would not be weird at all right now for somebody to write that book about 9-11 that I was talking about. Honestly, if we wrote it right away, like a month after it happened, it's probably not the best time when we've had time to reflect on it, we know what happens with the Osama bin Laden thing now, right? We know how that story ends. We've had time to, to look it over. We've had time to talk to a lot of people. We've had time to gather a lot of information. Now would be a really good time to write that book. And 10 years from now would be a really good time to write that book because it's still fresh, but we have a better perspective because we've been able to back up and kind of think about it a little bit. I think that's another one of the cool things about the Gospel of John. John wrote it last. It was the last Gospel written. He's an old man by the time he writes it. He's had time to sit and reflect and ruminate on it and think, you know what was really cool about Jesus was this. That woman at the well, nobody else talked about that, but that was cool. That's my favorite story in the whole Bible. You know, John's the only one who gives us that because he had time to sit back and think about it. Like, you know what? This story needs to be told. You know, those moments. Um, how long is the gap between the event and the writing? Okay, that's, that's a big deal. We want to know that. It can't be too long, but it shouldn't be too short. How long between the first copy and our copy? And what I mean by that is the first edition that comes out of this 9-11 book published in 2019, 100 years from now, that original copy may be lost. But if we have a copy from like, 2030, it's pretty close. We want to know, okay, we don't have Mark's original gospel. We don't have John's original, we don't have John's handwriting of his original gospel. How long is it between the one he wrote and the copy we have? The shorter the amount of time, the less opportunity for things to change and get out of order. Okay, so this is how we tell if old books are good. Let's look at the Bible. Uh, we're going to compare the Greek New Testament to the Iliad. And the reason why we're picking the Iliad is because it's a really fun book to read. No, that's not why. The reason why we're picking the Iliad is the Iliad is the best, aside from the New Testament, the best historically valid text that we can go to in the ancient world and say, 
here's one that's, eh, in some ways, almost comparable to the New Testament. And you'll see why as we get into it. This chart looks a little different, but it's in your book on page 23. The reason why it looks different on your book is I've, I've put this down to just the Iliad because I don't want to waste a lot of your time talking about other books. The Iliad is the best by a long shot, as you'll see in that chart that you've got. But um, copies of the Iliad. We have 1,757 copies of the Iliad from different places and different times. So if we want to evaluate them, we've got a lot of source material to work with. Um, from the time that Homer wrote the Iliad to the copy that we have, the earliest, oldest copy we have, there's a 400-year gap. So 400 years for the, word, the wording could have been changed and we wouldn't know because there's a gap there. We don't have an earlier text to compare it to. If you take every copy of the Iliad and lay it out side by side and you start comparing, you'll find about 95% of the Iliad is the same among all the copies. And there are changes, you know, little editing things or places where a word kind of got copied down wrong or something got left out or whatever. In the New Testament, to compare, just Greek New Testament, we have 5,800 copies. And if you add in all the other languages, we have over 18,000 copies of the New Testament. Lots of source material to work with. And if we want to compare them to each other, they are 99 point something big percent the same, identical. And if the point whatever percent bothers you, do know almost everything that is in not exactly the same between this copy of the Bible and this copy of the Bible is the spelling of a word. And in a lot of cases, somebody who transcribed it took the first spelling and just used that every time thereafter rather than trying to copy it, you know, the misspelled word or whatever. Um, so typically, that's what it is. And absolutely 0% of the disagreement among copies of the Bible have anything to do with anything that's important for our salvation, any doctrinal things. There's no disagreement about the words of Jesus. It wasn't like oh, I'm going to die, but I'm going to come back again, and that's different in another book. You know, that, it's, not, it's nothing like that. It's minute little nitpicky things. It is absolutely nothing that should give you any cause for concern. You can look deep into this if you want to. The internet is a, is a huge place. Mind your source, but um, you get in there and you'll find there's, there's nothing of concern that's different. And there's less than 40 years, and that's on the long end of the estimate, between when it was written, and the earliest copy we have, which means we have every reason to believe this book is very, very well preserved. The New Testament is almost certainly exactly the words that were recorded when it was originally written. And who wrote it? The people who walked with Jesus. And when did they write it? When everybody else who was alive to see Jesus saw it happen. If you didn't believe in God before... Read one gospel, any gospel, and know a guy that walked with Jesus, wrote that word down, published it in the lifetime of everybody else who was alive to see Jesus, and the thing survived. Not only did it survive, it was copied and copied and copied and copied and distributed to every little church that could possibly get a copy of it, and people gave their lives in the testimony of it and to protect it. What else do you need to know? What more could you ask for? That's good. I mean, if, if not one other thing could be said for the Bible, that's more than enough 
to give you the confidence to know that the words in it are true. If every single one of these guys agrees, Jesus claimed to be God, proved through his actions that he was God, told us he was going to die and come back from the dead, and then did it, and said, I'm going to go back home and get things ready so that you can come. What more do you want? That's it. That's all you need. Who cares if how the Old Testament was preserved? If Jesus quoted from it, it got to be good, right? He quoted the Old Testament all the time. He clearly was confident in it, and we should be confident in the New Testament. That locks it all in. I don't think there's anything else you need to know. We don't stop here, but that, if that's all we had, that's all we'd need. To me, and the Iliad is a strange example. Most ancient texts, that 400-year gap on the Iliad, that's only a 40-year gap on the Bible, it's a 1,000 years for older texts, for other ancient works. Um, and most of them have fewer than 250 copies versus it's 1,800 versus our almost 6,000. And we're finding new ones all the time. And we're getting cool technologies to find new ones. There, I know I saw something in an article recently. There was a copy of a Torah scroll, or not a Torah scroll, a New Testament scroll, and it was burned. But they kept it because they said, one of these days, maybe we can do something with that. And now they've got some sort of scanning electron microscope thing that they're able to scan. If you tried to unroll it, it would just crumble. But they left it rolled up. And they've got a way now to scan through the layers and actually see what's on those deeper layers. And they're finding what you would expect them to find, scripture that matches 100% with other things, other scripture, stuff that we already know. It's nothing new, which is good. We want there to be nothing new, right? Like, that's awesome. Okay, so our New Testament documents are all 40 to 50 years behind Jesus' resurrection of them all being written. They were regarded as correct. Every single author that we mentioned of the New Testament died because they were preaching about Jesus. And on their horrible execution, did not recant a word of that testimony. If we are to be made to believe that the Bible was just written by some dude... This proves that's not the case. If we are to believe that these guys fabricated the story, why would you fabricate that story? People lie all the time to elevate themselves. People tell elaborate backstories about themselves. We've seen that happen. There was some, well, the person who went on the Oprah show or something, some book they wrote about their life, and it turned out it was all made up. They did that because they wanted to be on Oprah. They wanted to sell a million copies of a book and make a bunch of money. The New Testament authors got nothing but pain and misery for this. There was no fame. There was no fortune. There was no entourage of important people or attractive people to follow them around. They got, Paul got stoned for preaching the word of God. And then two towns later turned around and went back where they stoned him to preach at him some more. He was just asking for it. And he got it eventually. They all did. Everybody but John died for their faith without taking back a word of it. That tells a lot to me. That's all I need. They had everything to lose and nothing to gain on this world. But they had confidence in a world to come because they met a guy from that world 
who told them how it was going to work out. That's, that's it. That's all we need. Ravi uh, Zacharias, he's a really big time guy in apologetics and just in Christian writing. Um, you'll hear him all over the place. You'll hear them talk about him on K-Love. You'll, uh, if you get into Christian writing at all, you'll run across his name sooner or later. He said this, in real terms, the New Testament is easily the best attested ancient writing in terms of the sheer number of documents, the time span between the events and the document, and the variety of documents available to sustain or contradict it. There is nothing in ancient manuscript evidence to match such textual availability and integrity. And that's a guy that's a heck of a lot smarter than me and has read a lot more about this stuff and knows a lot more about it. And his whole life is doing this stuff. And that's what he has to say about it. All the stuff we just talked about, basically. But in a nice quote. Um, okay, so let's... The New Testament, I think we got that locked in. The New Testament is reliable. How do we know that it's reliable? Because the guys that wrote it, wrote it. It got copied really quickly. It got copied so many times that we've got lots and lots of copies of it. And we can use that as a proof that it's all good. It is the way that it was originally recorded. And that if we want to believe those things are true, then awesome. There's no reason to doubt it. The words are accurate. So um, as long as you have faith to believe in those things being possible, that's all it takes. But what about the Old Testament? Again, most of the books of the Old Testament were written by the people who experienced it. If you turn to page 24 of your book, I've got a whole graphic there. Um, I'm not going to go through it, but Joshua wrote Joshua. Cool. Jeremiah wrote First and Second Kings and Jeremiah like you would think that he probably would write Jeremiah. Um, the books that Samuel wrote, the books that Solomon wrote, the books that, you know, each of the, the prophets, Ezekiel wrote Ezekiel and Daniel wrote Daniel and all that good stuff. Um, most of them were written by the people who experienced it. The exception is the books of history, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those first Torah books. Now, the later parts of that were written by Moses and he experienced it, you know. But Genesis, that's pure history, right? I mean... None of the people who were alive for the creation of the world got to tell about it. Adam and Eve died. So they didn't, we don't have a book of Adam. So Moses was writing a history there. But historians that write the Bible, yeah, they have the inspiration of God. And it is entirely plausible that Moses could have just, under God's direction, went under some tree somewhere and wrote the Bible down and God could have spoke it into his ear. That's possible. But it's also entirely possible and highly likely that God did with Moses what he's done with man through all of the generations of man, which is he delivers his word to man and expects man to keep it. When Moses wrote those books, why would we think that he had no source material to work from? Yes, Moses worked under the inspiration of God. But there's no reason to think that somebody back there didn't write stuff down and Moses would have had access to those things. The history of his people. When the Israelites walked places and they carried the Ark of the Covenant and the tent around with them, they also carried scrolls with them. Well, that wasn't new. They were probably doing that before. Moses not only had God but he probably had the writings of man to work with as well. People don't talk about that a lot. Part of that is because I think we think that early man was in some way unintelligent. We always think we're better than the generations before us. And it always surprises us when we dig stuff up and we're like, whoa, what is this? 
the Baghdad battery, this thing, this clay jar we dug up, the only thing it can possibly be is a battery. It has electrodes in it and like places to hook wires up to it. What in the world else could it be? And that thing is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before electricity was discovered by man or what? We just forgot. The civilization that had that stuff figured out got wiped out by somebody. Man has always been intelligent. There's something we call the Antikythera mechanism. I don't know if you've ever heard of this before. They found it in the bottom of a bay somewhere in uh, Europe, uh, someplace advanced civilization kind of place you'd expect Mediterranean Sea. I should have looked it up, but I wasn't planning on talking about it. They dug this thing up out of the ground and they're trying to figure out what in the world it is. And over time, they finally figured it out. It's a computer, really, essentially. I mean, a simple one. But basically, you could program this thing. It's a bunch of gears and levers and, and stuff. And you could basically program this thing to your own personal calendar. And you give the thing a crank every day. And it moves all these things ahead. It tells you what phase of the moon it is, what season it is, what time of day it is. It tells you, if you put your own personal calendar items in there, like, oh, I want to remember my wife's birthday, which is tomorrow. I remember. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you could put that in there and it would keep it and it would let you know every time. And weird things that are on strange cycles that don't repeat real regular. It could do it all. It was this neat little computer for keeping track of dates and stuff. And the thing is thousands of years old. It has to be. Man is not dumb and never was. We get this caveman mentality. Oh, men, <clears throat> you know, we'll, I'll rip caveman apart for you on, a, on another day. But we think ancient man was stupid. Ancient man was not stupid. They wrote this stuff down. Adam very well may have been a writer. There's no reason to think he wasn't. He was smart enough to hold a conversation with God the day he was born. God gave him a job, name the animals, and he did it. You think Adam couldn't write? God can write. He did it. He wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger on stone. And Adam was created in God's image. I have every confidence that Adam could have written if he wanted to and keep track of things, and I think he probably did. Did Moses have Adam's copy? No, but he might have had a copy of that copy. He might have. I don't know. Adam was fully capable of anything he wanted to do, including writing, because Adam was made in the image of God. So Moses had probably some written source material to work from. Tell you a little story here. Jennifer and I, when we were in college, we went to Missouri State West Plains and got our AA degrees. If we had gotten an AA degree from any other credible university on earth and we transferred to Springfield, they wouldn't have even questioned it. They'd have just been like, oh, you've got an AA, cool. Move on to your next level of courses. But because it was Missouri State's branch campus in West Plains, they went through our AA degree with a fine tooth comb and said, no, you have to retake this and this because these credits don't transfer. I have a degree. It's done. I had to go back and take classes that I already had gotten a degree for, for some reason. One of those, I took Old Testament and New Testament history, but at Missouri State, that's not, that doesn't work. You have to take REL 100. So Jennifer and I took it together as seniors in a class of freshmen. It was lovely. And in REL 100, actually, side note, we watched a girl lose her faith in REL 100 because she didn't have this. She didn't have this preparation. And when she was exposed to other religious ideas about Hinduism and Buddhism and 
you know, Muslim faith and all that stuff. She felt betrayed by her parents who had never prepared her to find that information out. And it made her think that maybe her Bible was only as good as the Quran or only as good as the Book of Mormon or only as good as fill in the blank with some religious text that was made by a person who died and didn't come back from the dead, <laughs> right? And she wasn't prepared for that and her faith crumbled right in front of us. It was a horrible experience to watch. But one of the good things that came out of that class was that we were required to attend a religious service that had no bearing on any religious service we'd ever attended before. I was not allowed to say, oh, well, I was raised, I wasn't raised Baptist, but let's just say, I was raised Baptist, so I'm going to go to a Methodist church. No, 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 no. You got to break faith. You got to go to some completely other thing. So we were not going to go to a Muslim temple or a Buddhist shrine or something like that. But we thought, hey, Judaism, that's close. Is there a Jewish synagogue around here? I mean, that's at least in the household of faith, right? And there is, there's a very progressive Jewish temple in Springfield. And so we went and uh, it was a lady rabbi that should show you how progressive a church it was. They don't have a lot of those. Um, but uh, she showed us some things that were really cool. And one of them was they had scrolls with the Torah. Um, and so they unrolled the scroll and she's got this little you ever seen those, you go to like the book fair, like the scholastic book fair, and they've got the stick with the little hand on the end of it. It's like a little blow mold, white plastic hand. I see a couple nodding people. They have one of those, except it's like gold, you know, it's like really pretty. Yes? Oh, yeah, well, that's good. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. Yeah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Five books, so Penta, Pentateuch, or Torah, whatever. It's got lots of names. Um, so she pulls out a Torah scroll. She pulls out Genesis, actually, and she gets her fancy pinkies up. It's real fancy pointy stick because you don't touch the scroll. And she starts pointing at it. Yeah, she rolls up her sleeves and everything, and she uses the pointy stick, and she, and she starts reading it, but it's not like reading C dot run, dot runs fast. She's singing it. Because in Hebrew, which is what this copy was in, and she was reading it in Hebrew, the first five books of the Bible aren't just a book, they're a song. Now, makes it easier to remember. I tell this to my psychology students all the time. I'm like, can you memorize, you know, and put some huge thing up there, something, the complete works of Shakespeare or something. It's like, no, of course you couldn't memorize that. All right, let's say I want you to memorize a short book, like a 25-page book, but I want you to remember it word for word. They can't do it. The thought of memorizing a 25-page book is absolutely ridiculous. But I'm like, okay, lay out five albums and start singing the lyrics. You remember them. You can remember hundreds of songs, thousands of songs, and you remember every single word in exactly the right order. And if you're driving down the road and your favorite song comes on the radio, but it's the live version... And they do something different with you like, whoa, that's not the way it goes. Or even if just like the pitch of a, of a part is different, it's like, that's not right. Right? Like, you know, instantly. Because our brains are just made to work that way. God made us that way. And if it's put to music and it's got a little rhyme to it, we can do it. 
And the Hebrew Bible, we lose it in the English translation, but the original Hebrew Bible, it has meter, it has rhyme, it's a song, and once you had heard it your whole life and you hear this thing over and over again, it was no trouble for you to remember it. In fact, Jewish children were raised, and it's just like one of the things, you know, when you get out of seventh grade or whatever, you have the entire Torah memorized. You can sing the whole thing. Really? Yeah, that was normal. Like, Jewish people just did that. That was just part of the deal. That's part of, the, part of being in the household of faith. So they had the entire Torah memorized. So when we say like, oh, well, Moses is working from, like, how do we know what the story of Genesis really is? Nobody was there to write. Well, yeah, there's been people to write it. We would have had a written copy. And also, it was in a song format. And God wanted it that way. God had it put together that way so that his people would remember it. His people would remember it when they're walking through a desert and it's not convenient to carry copies of books around with you. We live in the information age. We don't need that now. We can pull the Bible up on our phone. God gives his people what they need in the time that they need it. And in that time, when times were weird and written documents were hard to keep a hold of and people were scattered all over the world, having the Bible as a song was real handy. And that's the way they had it. So Moses had the Torah song. And from that point on, from Moses' day onward, the tribes of Israel had tasks and the Levites kept the word and they preserved it. And they carried it around with them everywhere they went, just like they carried the Ark of the Covenant and it was equally precious to them. They would have kept it. And if you're making a copy of God's word, and you are a scribe, and that is your whole life, and that's all you do is make copies of the Bible, you better believe you take it very seriously. This is the word of God I'm dealing with. I don't want to get one letter wrong. And so those early copies that were made, absolutely the ones we have today are the same words. Because if I am tasked with copying the word of God, I want to get every letter right. Absolutely do. And we know... Because of like, there's, we call it the Masoretic text. It's a copy, an early copy of the Bible. The, the people who wrote that one, they were really specific about it. After they would write a line, when you got a copy of the Bible, like today, I know when I pick up a Bible, the first thing I do if I'm going to buy a Bible, I flip through it and I look at what the text looks like and how the lines are broken up and stuff like that because I want it visually to look a certain way. Back then with like Masoretic text, it was all set and you kept it the same every time. So if there were exactly 22 letters on this line, the next copy is going to have exactly 22 letters on that line. You don't break the line at a different place because it needs to be verifiable. You need to be able to go back and compare copies and make sure every single letter is right. I should be able to turn to page 45, go down six lines, go over three characters, and it better be an R. And I can go through and check it and know, yep, that's right. And they wrote in the margins. And they had cool things figured out. Even way back, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, they had it figured out. And neat little side note, and there's like a dot in the page. This is the middle letter of the Old Testament. They had every letter counted. And they're like, oh, there's, you know, 22 million letters, and this is the 11 millionth letter. That's cool. This is the very middle of the Bible. Neat fact. And they like nerds, like Bible nerds. And they wrote that in the margin. That tells us how religious they were about keeping this word. 
we're not the first generation to apply a critical eye to the Bible and say, is this reliable? And we better keep this thing preserved. We've been doing this for thousands of years. The scribes were serious about their job. And another cool thing, um, during the years of silence, the 400 years of human history between the writing of the last book of prophecy in the Old Testament and the arrival of Jesus on the world scene. During that 400 years of silence, there was a guy named Ptolemy III who wanted a complete library. And in his library, he wanted to accumulate religious texts from around the world. And he hired a group to comprise what we call the Septuagint. It's 70 men. That's why it's called Septuagint. These 70 men were from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they got together and took all the copies of the Old Testament that were around and combined them down into a master copy that all 70 men from all 12 tribes absolutely 100% agreed on and said, this is undeniably the word of God. And they were experts at it. It's what they did all day. And so... Right at the end of the Old Testament's history, God set in motion an event that would make it possible for us to have a final master copy of the Old Testament that had been verified by very credible men to go back to and say, yeah, this is the preserved word of God. Right before the new one comes out, the new edition. <laughs> The, the second story, the New Testament comes out. It's really cool. And so we have every reason to go back and look at our Bible and say, this is a reliable text. Okay, so page 26 of your book, you've got a couple blanks you can fill in. We haven't had any blanks tonight, so tonight, now's the time. And we're like done, so. The Old Testament was mostly written by the person who, and you can under, you put this underlined bit down, who experienced it. It's inspired by God, but they also sought, you know, mankind's standards of accuracy. So that's good. And then I put this down because this is absolutely true. If we picked any other book up and it met even half of the criteria for historic accuracy that the, that the Bible meets, no one would question the source. No one would question the source. Because it's the Bible, people nitpick it because they don't want to believe it. But if the Bible is not reliable, then no other book is. And that is the truth. That is not a, a, a charged statement by a guy who believes in the Bible. I'm saying just based on the statistics alone, if you cannot accept the authenticity of the writing of the Bible, there is no other book you can rely upon because it's more credible than any other book. We just showed you that. We just proved that it is. You can't really do much with that. I mean, you just got to take that for what it is because that's what it is. It's the most reliable book that's ever been written, which is good because it's got some really good stuff in it that says some really positive things about who we are and where we're going. I'm glad of all the books in the world to be reliable that this is the one. Now we just got to get the word out about it. <laughs> Let other people know about it. There are a few other things um, that, are in the, that are not in the Bible. There are no lost books of the Bible, okay? Um, in the Old Testament, there's a set of books called the Apocrypha. 
They were all written in the gap of silence between that 400-year gap between the last um, inspired work and the, uh, you know, book of Matthew. Actually, it'd be book of Mark if you're going in chronological order. That is 1st and 2nd Ezra, Tobit, Judith, the Maccabees, and then some additions to the book of Esther and the book of Daniel. Um, the reason why those books are not in your Bible, because you might say, okay, good, cool, Matt, I get it. All the stuff that's in the Bible is reliable. I buy that. All this stuff is good. I buy that. But is there any other stuff that ought to be in there that isn't? No, there's not. These are books that other people have tried to claim at some point in history should have been included in the Bible, but they were not included by that Septuagint. They were not included by smart guys who knew the Bible. And here's why. These books contain contradictions. The Bible does not contradict itself, not one time, which is really cool considering it was written by lots of people over hundreds of years of time. It's really cool. It doesn't contradict itself. Jesus quotes like every book of the Bible, Old Testament. He does not quote Tobit. So there you go. He doesn't, he doesn't quote any of these. So unlike scripture, you can write that down. These books contain contradictions. And Jesus, nor any of the other authors of the New Testament, ever quote from those books. Clearly, Jesus didn't think you needed them. Now, Jewish scholars do consider these to be suitable history books. You can read them. There's nothing wrong with them. It's not like devil worship or something, but they're not scripture. They're just history. Uh, for the New Testament, there are the quote-unquote lost books. Um, I'd stay pretty clear of these. Um, the book of Thomas, you guys know Doubting Thomas. I won't believe in Jesus until I stick my finger in the hole in his hand. Supposedly, he wrote this gospel um, containing new, previously unreleased statements from Jesus, but uh, the book of Thomas actually contradicts the Bible and was never included in canon scripture, um, and so we need not read it. The Gospel of Mary reeks of Gnosticism. Gnostics were a group of people who kind of came into power a while after Jesus' uh, resurrection, and they believed that Jesus was a really cool guy, but not actually the Son of God. And so they kind of had a different take on it. We don't want anything to do with Gnostics because we know Jesus was the Son of God. Um, the Gospel of Judas... Apparently, he wrote a gospel before his suicide. I don't really know how that works out. Um, it paints Judas as not a betrayer of Christ, but operating on Jesus' instructions. Like, hey, dude, sell me out. It'll be cool. Um, I don't think that's right. And then there's the apocalypse of Peter, which to me sounds like Middle Ages stuff. You know, when the Pope was like selling tickets you could buy a relative out of purgatory and into heaven or something like that. Um, the apocalypse of Peter indicates that there is hope after death of like changing your course. Like, oh, my relative is dead and gone, but I can still get him into heaven. Yeah, that doesn't, hmm, no, I don't work with the rest of the Bible. So that's why those books are not in the Bible. And these are the only ones that have any traction with anybody on earth as being quote unquote lost scripture, but none of them even come close to meeting the standards that the Bible has for itself um, in its credibility. Now, um, I've gone through my time, which is good because this is where I plan to stop anyway. Uh, science in the Bible is coming up next time. This is the beginning of all of my favorite stuff. I mean, the first two nights of apologetics are really good and I like them a lot. But from here on, it just, ah, it's just a hit a minute, man. It's so much fun. Um, I will tell you, like, I had the plan to talk about what we talked about the first night. The first night, I thought it would be a race. 
but I could do it in one night. Um, this, I knew I could get in in one night, and I even had time to editorialize a little bit, and I probably did a little too much. This stuff, man, we're just going to have to go until we hit six, so five or something, and then I'm just going to have to say, oh, we just have to pick this up next time, because there's no stopping point between here and the end of whenever I get to the end of this thing, because it's just, it's all one kind of concept, and it's huge, and it's fun, and it just goes and goes and goes and goes and goes. So um, it'll probably take us at least two, maybe three nights to get through all of this if I really get rolling, like me before. I mean, I don't know. Um, but it, it'll take a little bit to get through it. A lot of good stuff in there. That's where the dinosaurs and the cavemen and all that good stuff are. But also some more details about how absolutely ridiculous all this Big Bang stuff is, and we kind of get nitpicky and scientific about it, so that's cool. Um,